Good afternoon to our listeners. My name is Vincenzo Guido, and I am an ILR senior and co-editor-in-chief of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review. And my name is Matthew Jacob, also an ILR senior and co-editor-in-chief of the Review. And we are back for another episode of Law and Society Talk, brought to you by the members of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell, with the generous space and airtime of cornellradio.com. In short, our publication seeks to provide an open platform for scholarly writing, critical thinking, and reasoned debate on the myriad of issues in the fields of law and policy. This podcast is meant solely for the purposes of discourse and discussion and should not be construed to be any form of legal advice or counsel. We'll be coming to you on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time every other week, uh, again, now remotely and through everyone's new favorite conferencing platform, Zoom. Yes. Big thanks to Cornell for the credentials on that. So uh, we thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to getting underway this afternoon. Really, today, we have a really a, a stacked uh, episode. Uh, we're going to go through a variety of different things that uh, the Supreme Court is considering. Some stuff uh, is actually, um, you know, will be updates on some matters that we've either touched on in feature segments um, in previous episodes or just sort of uh, glazed over. So I think with that, um, just because we have a lot to go through today, uh, we'll dive right in that. Does that sound yeah. good? Yeah, that sounds good. All Let's right. go. So I think uh, the first thing, especially from episode four, uh, really uh, was the update on the major gun case that we had actually discussed. So, uh, so for those of you, um, uh, for the first time on the show, I've lost a wager with Matt. Yes. Uh, with regard How to many wagers have we made? I think Maybe two, just, maybe yeah. So I guess maybe oh, well, something with Bolton. Something with Bolton. I forget exactly what it was about him testifying yeah. or something. Yes, that I think was the first one, and then yeah. so I, th- I thought there was one other one, but anyway, regardless. So as some of you may recall from episode four of this podcast, we covered the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. New York City's case, uh, which challenged a New York City ordinance that places uh, significant restrictions on gun owners. Um, and how they could transport their firearms and under what circumstances they could have um, their firearms in certain places. So basically during the course of this litigation, uh, the city council, which I believe is the body that had um, passed this ordinance and then ultimately uh, had made some amendments to it, they walked back the law um, in some respects in an effort to make uh, the matter move because originally, as you remember, this was seen as a potential way for um, conservative um, Second Amendment activists to try to use the conservative um, majority on the court to expand um, the breadth of Second Amendment rights. So if you remember, Matt, you had asked me to take the wager, as I referred to before, and I said yeah. that I did not think that the justices would deem it moot because they mm-hmm. read cert to it, um, and we're still asking for briefs on some of the merits of the case. So, um, mm-hmm. But really, yet another per curiam opinion uh, proved me wrong. Um, it, it seems like it was a 6-3 decision, um, and it was interesting because Justice Kavanaugh uh, was probably uh, almost definitely among those six, uh, huh. at least as it pertains to part of the opinion, because um, he had filed a partial concurring opinion. And then there were three um, dissents that were on file from Justice Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch that really said that even though the uh, the matter was rolled back by the city council, that there were still um, you know significant violations of the Second Amendment that merited um, you know s- merited a ruling uh, and didn't basically render the case moot. So really, I think really at the end of the day, Matt, this is sort of where I'm at, where, you know, do you think that, you know, this is the end of Second Amendment litigation, at least for the short term, given that the court routinely shies away from these cases? Or do you think that this is just sort of the beginning and there'll be other petitions that will, you know, come in soon um, with regard to the Second Amendment? I think this was probably a bad vehicle to uh, actually try to get the court to, you know, try to strengthen the Second Amendment, which made it 
a 6-3 decision, really. So uh, I yeah. think part of it's Roberts trying to – I mean, the court is just in such a rough couple-year period. They're really trying not to completely shake everything up. So I think mm-hmm. that this is one of those cases that he was just trying to, like, kind of kick the can down the road a little bit. I mean, they've done yeah. this before. I mean, think of gerrymandering. Was it two years ago? They kicked the can, yeah. although they came back the next and year. Both of those cases, Yeah. yeah. They kicked the can uh, down the road for a year and then came back and Rucho and basically said, we can't do anything about gerrymandering. So, I mean, I, this mm-hmm. honestly, this could be one of those where they kick the can down the road and maybe um, next term or next two terms, or even the next like three or four terms, they decide to come back to guns and slowly whittle away at it. And, and I, say, I say slowly whittle away uh, on purpose because that's what they're more likely to do, I think, than just try mm-hmm. to you know, go all out extremist Second Amendment rights. I think they're they're probably going to come back and just they'll take some kind of gun control restriction in one of these more liberal states like New York, for example, right? And mm-hmm. uh, they'll probably say, oh, this is in violation of the Second Amendment, right? And then they'll come back and do another case that's similar, and then they'll slowly and surely whittle away at, uh, you know, gun control restrictions. I think they're more yeah. likely to do that because it's just, it's more it's it's better for it's probably better for the court politically instead of just yeah. doing one single case. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, we're not talking about um, you know abortion rights in this episode, but I think the general consensus is the same when it comes to that. That they're not going to just say Roe v. Wade is you know was the wrong decision and abortion should be completely unconstitutional or something like that, right? They'll 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 do what they they'll just whittle away at it slowly. Uh, you know, making it even harder and harder to get abortions to the point where there's like, yeah, like uh, there'll be like, there'll be absolutely zero clinics in red states, probably. Um, mm-hmm. They'll probably get to that point. And then there'll probably be significantly less clinics, even in blue states. So it's just yeah. going to be, you know, really bad for the country. And I think they'll do the same thing in this gun case. So, you know, when it comes to your actual question, is this the end of Second Amendment litigation, at least in the short term? I, I I'm unsure. I, I think that there's it probably isn't. I, I think that they'll do they'll probably come you back wanna, to it pretty. You want to take a wager on that? I'd say <laughs> that the, yeah. No, I would. I would say that they come back to gun control well, to you know get the Second Amendment and gun control in the next let's say three to four terms and at least slowly a whittle away at it. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they took a big break, right? I mean, we, we talked about this in uh, when in episode four. How long? I mean, the last one was Heller, maybe? That was... Hell, uh, McDonald, I think, was the big case. When was before. that? But yeah, I mean, the most, the most like, that? Con- that was 2010, I think. Yeah. McDonald, okay, I think, was 2010. So yeah. yeah, so I... Okay, so I'm stipulating if there is not some calamitous change in the composition of the court... Mm-hmm. So assuming it stays this 5-4, I mean, I mean that's obviously that's not at all a guarantee. But if it's close to this 5-4, especially if it goes to like 6-3 Ginsburg, if the Republicans mm-hmm. get the Ginsburg seat or something like that, there is like, I, I would say, like a 90% chance that they come back. Mm-hmm. But if it is, remains 5-4, I'd still go down to like 60-70% chance that they come back mm-hmm. to it in three or four terms. So, yeah, um, in, in the short, definitely in the long term for sure. In the short term, I'd say the next three to four terms that they'll come back at least in a small part. What do you think? Definitely. Uh, I, I would generally agree with that. I think one of the interesting things that, this, that the dissent raised too was this idea of, you know, is the you know, court 
being functionally manipulated because now legislatures, you know, if they don't like, you know, or are anticipating a ruling that's, <laughs> that's unfavorable to them, then they, you know, they, they just repeal it. Yeah. Exactly. Which, uh-huh. which I think is an interesting thing to consider. That is. I mean, regardless yeah. of the poly, you know, the political dimensions of this. It's like, you know, do we really, you know, it, can mootness be weaponized as a means to try to like sway a ruling, you know, in favor of you, which I, I think at the end of the day, like it, it really depends. Um, you know, in this matter, it's clear that, you know, you it was had, weaponized. Exactly. I mean, yeah. and it was pretty explicitly stated and encouraged by, um, you know, anti-gun activists, you know, to try to roll back the law such that, you know, the court would uh, rule moot. And they, and they ultimately were successful. In that. Yeah, so, I don't know how um, I fell down on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, though, with the points that you made, though, especially with something as controversial as gun rights, um, that the court in general will take a small C conservative approach to uh-huh. um, whichever yeah. route they go, barring any substantial change in composition as you indicated so i think yeah. with that um definitely will be interesting um second amendment litigation is always a hot topic so i think with that um another sort of very interesting case in terms of what the state of georgia tried to do yeah. with its uh with its official code you want to talk a little bit about the major copyright case that uh yeah was before the court yeah so it was uh georgia v public uh, public.resource.org and uh, you know it's it's a case that didn't really get a lot of attention like I hadn't even heard of it on this term until the decision came out I think was it I think it was actually like last week and um, you know copyright they do the court does a lot of IP stuff um, you know as you know uh, Vincenzo but like it doesn't it doesn't doesn't make news like you know mm-hmm. IP law is really boring usually uh, I think for most people besides people that work in the field and it's usually not like some groundbreaking stuff i mean every once in a while there's like the big cases like i'm thinking like samsung like apple yep. v, apple v samsung or samsung v apple or whatever but like even even then like they don't really i mean the new york times might send a push alert but there's nobody you yep. know a- anticipating that besides i guess the people in the general counsel office at, at these companies right yeah th- yep. this case is pretty interesting because it has to do with georgia's entire official code right so i'll go over a little bit of the facts here so georgia uh, uh, the case concerned the 54 volumes of the official code of Georgia annotated, which contains state statutes and related materials. I'm, I'm quoting from the New York Times here. Uh, the state, through LexisNexis, a, a, a platform that I know you, Vincenzo, are very familiar with, as am I. Uh, uh, so the, the state, through LexisNexis, a legal publisher, makes the statutes themselves available online, and it is said it does not object to others doing the same. But, and this is the big but, People who want to see the annotations prepared by lawyers working for LexisNexis as part of the financial arrangement with the state must pay. So basically, I think the state is paying LexisNexis to make these annotations for the law. And Mm -hmm. um, this is very important. So I I think that this case actually ended up 5-4. And this was a really interesting, you know, alliance of uh, judges. I mean, you had Roberts with Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh in the majority. So I'm not sure you really see that kind of split very often. And then you had, uh, I guess, RBG with Thomas and Alito and whatever justice I'm forgetting. But um, yeah, so a really interesting split. And um, basically what the decision held was that Georgia could not copyright those annotations, even though they are not technically part of the law of Georgia, right? And that's mm-hmm. where the conservatives really, uh, you know, differed from 
well, they don't, I can't say conservatives and liberals in this case because it wasn't really conservatives and liberals. That's where the, uh, the dissent really disagreed because it wasn't part of the law. But uh, my very best friend, John Roberts, who I think wrote the majority, yeah, he wrote for the majority. He made a really interesting point that I'm going to read for you uh, right now. So, you know, Georgia in the case, they really minimize the, the importance of the annotations, right? Because they're non-binding, they're non-authoritative. Everybody, I mean, I know you know this, Vincenzo, a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. probably know this. I mean, they're just, they're, they have like warnings saying like, this is not the law, basically, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is just our yeah. interpretation of the law. But, right. you know, but that description, according to John Roberts, really undersells their practical significance of the annotations, right? So then he makes this really good point. He says, imagine a Georgia citizen in, interested in learning his legal rights and duties. If he reads the economy class version of the Georgia Code available online, so just the regular one, no annotations, right? He will see laws requiring political candidates Mm -hmm. to pay hefty qualification fees with no indigency exception, criminalizing broad categories of consensual sexual conduct, and exempting certain key evidence in criminal Mm -hmm. trials from standard evidentiary limitations with no hint, and this is important, with no hint that important aspects of these laws have been held unconstitutional by the Georgia Supreme Court. So these people that don't have access to the, these annotations will be reading laws that actually have been held unconstitutional by the Georgia Supreme Court, and the Georgia legislature just hasn't went back and repealed those laws in the code. So they're still in the code, except that people don't understand that right. they actually are unconstitutional. So Roberts continues. Meanwhile, first-class readers with access to these annotations will be assured that these laws are, in crucial respects, unenforceable relics that the legislature has not bothered to narrow or repeal. So then he goes on to say, if everything short of statutes and opinions were copyrightable, then states would be free to offer a whole range of premium legal works for those who can afford the extra benefit. A state could monetize its entire suite of legislative history. With today's digital tools, states might even launch a subscription or pay per law service. So obviously I'm a big fan of uh, Chief Justice John Roberts as always in this uh, in this majority opinion. And he, and he just makes a really good point. The fact that people who can't afford to uh, pay for the annotations just don't have the ability to know this information that's really important. So, uh, you know, a lot of the decision was kind of technical. I mean, because I think the state was paying LexisNexis to make these annotations for it. Um, and, you know, it, it, they were trying to figure out, like, is that part of the official law of the state? If it was, then it would be uh, uncopyrightable. If it wasn't, then it would be copyrightable. But a lot of it came down to the fact that um, the people making the annotations were on a commission created by the state legislature. So they were saying, mm-hmm. the majority was saying, like, that's important. That's, like, official enough to actually uh, make mm-hmm. it so that it's not copyrightable. So, I mean, that's what it is at the end of the day. I'm a big, um, the reason I found this case really interesting was, number one, uh, the split down 5-4, not during, uh, not uh, split by ideological lines, but also because I'm a big fan of, um, transparency when it comes to and not having to pay for a law and stuff like that so you know uh, right now in the status quo you actually have to pay to get like federal filings and stuff like that in the court using the system mm-hmm. of pacer so uh you know the court actually is looking at that I, I forget what circuit i think maybe the dc circuit is actually looking at to see if that's constitutional or not so um yeah i'm a big fan of transparency i think people should be able to get you know all the access they could so 
Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering, Vincenzo, you know, was the majority in the right here? I mean, it's undisputable that the annotations are not technically the law. I mean, they're not, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, Roberts is saying the annotations are important enough to the practice and interpretation of the law that the Georgia should not be able to copyright them. Do you think that's right? But even though it's yeah. not really the law? I, I, I think that they are correct here. And I think largely for most of the reasons that you covered here, because you know, especially with regard to things, you know, in the, you know, state code that, you know, the Georgia Supreme Court has held unconstitutional that may no longer be formally part of the code or enforceable. I think that's very, very critical, you know, for just an average citizen, you know, being able to access and understand the law, even for attorneys as well, for that matter. I mean, because not all you, know, you have major, major law firms that obviously you know, will be able to shoulder the cost of that to afford you know, specific access to you know, whatever level of Alexa subscription you need to access yeah. those annotations. But individual attorneys you know, uh, may not, or you know, certain you know, um, public defender groups or even you know, other advocacy groups that may not have access to you know, that level of funding may not be able to access things like that, which makes, I think, the execution of justice in whatever capacity, whether it's criminal or civil, um, particularly difficult um, because obviously, as you said, while it's not formally part of the actual statute or the laws, you know, it, it's, it's a critical sort of addendum to it. Um, and that, yeah. you know, this is what the laws mean. Um, and I think that really to avoid any of these, you know, this classic debate, right, about, you know, what does a statute mean? Is, you know, should we take it, you know, for its, you know, its textual face value, its original intent, or, you know, what you know we think is the most pragmatic approach i mean georgia is quite literally providing what they you know what they are intending you know the statute to mean or, or where there's ambiguity so i think that really if anything else you know trying to put sort of a paywall in between that really doesn't do anything in the way of you know ensuring equal access to justice not so at I, all i, I yeah. agree i agree with the majority on this uh if for nothing else just on a common sense uh, from a common sense perspective yeah. um, is that if you want people to be following the laws and practicing the laws in the manner in which um, or, or in the in the spirit of what the legislator wanted them to mean then you have to include that addendum um, yeah. in the form of these annotations so I think I think uh, you and uh, Justice Roberts are on on your way to being best friends Matt. yeah yeah we see we have like a really you know hot and cold relationship, uh, Justice <laughs> and I. So, um, you know, with that, uh, a very boring copyright case that I tried to make interesting, I think we'll actually move on to a uh, slightly uh, different type of case. And, you know, it's a case called Kaler v. Kansas. It was actually the first case heard in the term. Uh, the decision came out, uh, I think, like maybe a month or two ago. It's been a little while, mm -hmm. but we wanted to talk about it. So, you know, Vicenza, if you can give us like the general overview of this case yeah. on the insanity defense, that'd be great. Definitely, yeah. So, and, and Matt can get a little more into the specifics later if we want to. But the general overview of this case, uh, which ironically enough, we actually had considered including on our first episode because of technical issues, we ended up opting for other stuff because there was other news that came in. But basically, yeah. um, really, the general overview of this case involved a question as to whether states are required to adopt the insanity defense in criminal cases by virtue of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment um, and I believe the punishments clause of the 8th Amendment. Those were the two sort of um, constitutional provisions that were cited by, uh, by Kaler's attorneys. And the matter here involved a case of uh, a really grisly first degree murder um, in which the plaintiff, uh, I think his name is James Kaler, if I'm not mistaken, I, I forget his first name. Um, basically, so. his attorneys argued that um, he mentally snapped after a series of um, unfortunate events in his uh, personal life, um, going through a bad divorce. And I think there was also a job 
yeah, um, situation. Like that. Uh, and by virtue of his diminished psychological state at the time was not culpable for his actions. So and at this point, too, I want to say that very, we're very much generalizing here for the sake of brevity because yeah, it's a very complex is, case. It's very complex. But the important thing here uh, for our listeners is that uh, Kansas had in 1995 passed a state law that revoked uh, the traditional insanity defense, uh, which under a series of uh, legal principles and common law um, sort of principles uh, called the uh, McNathan rules. I don't know if I'm pronouncing yeah, it properly. I think properly. it's McNaughton, yeah. Monoton, yeah, um, that, that sounds more right. My phonics are bad there. Um, <laughs> but basically, these rules stated that um, if someone may be found guilty of a crime because of the mental condition which prevents them from either controlling their actions or from knowing whether their actions were right or wrong. So this is sort of the classic idea of, you know, if you're not in a state where you're able to meaningfully distinguish between what is morally, uh, morally right and wrong, then you can traditionally uh, invoke this um, defense. And again, I'm simplifying for the sake of brevity. So basically, Kaler's lawyer said that this effectively violated his due process rights, while um, Kansas Solicitor General, arguing on behalf of Kansas, proposed that the aforementioned McNaughton rules, um, which again, the traditional insanity defense is derived from, uh, are not uniform and are, you know, should be subject to some you know, degree of state level discretion configuration vis-a-vis federalism. Um, really, in this case, uh, as we saw, um, uh, Kansas ended up prevailing with, um, again, the sort of interesting um, distribution of justices here, um, with Justice Kagan pending the majority, I believe it was 6-3, uh, we were looking at this yeah. before, and agreeing that states are constitutionally permitted to amend the insanity defense. Now, the important factor that Kagan emphasizes here in her ruling is that the Kansas law didn't completely discard the insanity defense. So it's not saying that, you know, you, know, you cannot, in the course of criminal proceedings not invoke the insanity defense, but it instead significantly curtailed it. Um, and uh, we can get into the specifics of that if we need to, but, but really it was sort of deviating from this, you know, traditional, you know, idea of, you know, if one is morally culpable by virtue of diminished psychological capacity, um, under the Kansas statute, it's much, much narrower. So I guess, Matt, you know, for me to sort of raise the question of like, you know, now that this, you know, is, you know, on the books, do you think that this is, you know, in the most extreme sense, you know, the end of the insanity defense across the board, or maybe a more nuanced way of asking that question is, do you think that now states uh, are going to start significantly curtailing um, the insanity defense, given that the justices have said that, you know, it's constitutionally permissible vis-a-vis federalism? Yeah, so um, I think your second question, the one about some the states, some states, is certainly mm-hmm. correct. I think that um, I don't think this is the end of the insanity defense across the board because there's a lot of states that, you know, actually have humanity in our union and uh, they will uh, keep the insanity defense in its current form that allows people to use it when it's necessary. I mean, I, I, we won't get into the details here because it's, it's just it's so complicated when it comes yeah. to the, uh, the utilization of the insanity defense. But I mean, you were right when you said that. Kansas technically had the insanity defense, but you know, um, our, my understanding and the understanding of a lot of legal experts is that it was not. I mean, they so neutered it that it really mm-hmm. can't be used like it, it used to. It's going to really yeah. result in a lot of people who would have been able to take that defense from just they would have to, you know, just plead. They they would just be guilty, right? They'd have to yeah. they'd have to plead guilty, or they would try and they fail, and then they would just end up being guilty. They would stand. They'd be right. standing. 
they'd have to be comp. They would Kansas would basically say they're competent for trial, and then they end up in a prison for life or for many years, and they wouldn't get the right. or on the death row. Like in the case of or of, death uh, row, yeah. Of Kaler, it was a it was a capital murder case. So I mean, not even withstanding the you know, not even necessarily regarding the details of his specific matter, but there's a, a it's not just even a matter of spending the rest of your life in prison or a significant term. I mean, for some of these cases, it could be the difference between life and death. Yeah. Um, so yeah. No. So Kansas, you know, states like Kansas, and I'm thinking of the uh, the more crime and punishment like states in the South that are really right. hard on uh, you know criminal defendants. I think that they will start you know trying to uh, you know I, I'm not sure like you said they didn't eliminate it. I'm not sure if it's constitutional to eliminate the insanity defense, but to make it so neutered that it becomes basically useless. I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about with you know abortion rights and and gun control. I mean. It's it's one thing to just completely eliminate something, or yeah. or say the Second Amendment is is ultimate and there's no restrictions, or say or say that you know abortion is 100% uh, prohibited. But I think it's going to be the same thing where you kind of you whittle away at it, and I think that's what states are going to do. They're going to start to whittle away at the insanity defense, or at least some states. I'm thinking of you know below the Mason-Dixon line kind of thing, <laughs> you know yeah. maybe Montana, Wyoming, the more conservative states will start Definitely. to will away at the insanity defense. But um, yeah, no, I think it's it's pretty problematic. I mean, uh, I, I, I do think you're right that it's going to start going away. And I was surprised. Well, I, I'm not sure I was completely surprised to see uh, Justice Kagan on the other side. I mean, this is one of those cases where uh, nobody's really sure exactly what was going to happen. They knew that most of the conservatives were on the side of um, – you know, sticking at trying to whittle away at the insanity defense, and they knew most of the liberals were on um, the side of trying to say that it, you know, it, it must be strong across all states. But nobody's really mm -hmm. sure exactly what the lineup would be, so uh, yeah. it's not surprising. But uh, you know, it's it's pretty disappointing, and I think it's 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 a very negative thing for criminal justice reform, as there's a lot of progress going on in uh, other areas. So. Uh, it's not one that a lot. It's not, yeah, it's not a, one that a lot of people talk about, but it's definitely a loss for uh, criminal justice reformers across the country. Yep, definitely. Yeah. So with that, you want to talk about uh, in the spirit of this weird distribution of justice. Yes. Uh, that, um, the environmental law case that's on the docket uh, for this uh, this term. Yeah. So this is another, uh, as Vincenzo alluded to, a really weird lineup uh, of justices, and it, you know it was a it was a win. Like I, you typically don't associate, um, <laughs> you typically don't associate like this term with like wins for wins for the liberals when it comes to stuff, even like mm -hmm. environmental law. So I was actually surprised to see this. So I actually I remember reading about oral arguments a couple months ago, and. Um, you know, I, th I thought there was a chance it would be 5-4. I didn't think it'd be 6-3. So this is like a pretty big win for environmentalists here. Yeah. And um, kind of, it's, it's, it, it's kind of complex, but I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Um, so what happened was the, uh, I'll give you the facts of the case. So the, so the case is about the county of Maui in Hawaii uh, being sued by an environmental group. And the reason for that is that their wastewater reclamation facility, which treats millions of gallons of sewage every day, um, they, they inject that treated waste into wells deep underground. So uh, there was a study actually ordered by the EPA that showed nearly all of the waste ended up in the Pacific Ocean because it seeped through the groundwater to the mm -hmm. ocean, right? So environmental groups challenged Maui and court over the pollution, arguing that the Clean Water Act required the facility to obtain a federal permit. So 
this is uh, th those are the facts of the case. So you know, it's see these this waste seeped through the groundwater, and what Maui is trying to say is that because it seeped through the groundwater and it didn't go directly into the ocean, that they mm -hmm. shouldn't have, they shouldn't be required to obtain a permit. So um, you know, the uh, the procedural history here is that uh, the district court sided with the environmentalists. And then the Ninth Circuit uh, affirmed the decision, saying such permits were required when pollutants are, and I quote, fairly traceable from the mm -hmm. pipe to navigable waters, which includes the Pacific Ocean, but not groundwater. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Supreme Court, in their 6-3 decision, said that fairly traceable was too broad. Um, and they basically wrote that instead of a fairly traceable standard, they should, there should be a functional equivalent of a direct discharge standard. So it's kind of weird, but Breyer was saying that if the pipe ends 50 miles from navigable waters and the pipe emits pollutants that travel with groundwater mixed with much other material and ends up in navigable waters only many years later, the permitting requirements likely do not apply. So under the fairly traceable standard, then that probably would have been uh, disallowed, but under the functional equivalent of a direct discharge, then it, it wouldn't have been allowed. So Breyer's opinion includes two major factors to be considered in evaluating whether discharge was a functionally equivalent to direct discharge. He said the, the distance that the pollutant must travel from the point of discharge to the federal waterway and the time it would take. So he's trying to say that like, if the discharge is seeping through the groundwater in like a month and it's probably like, I don't know, yeah. half a mile from the ocean, then that's probably the, uh, the equivalent of, uh, you know, uh, the, his direct quote, functionally equivalent to direct discharge, right? But if it's like 50 miles away and takes 100 years, then it's probably not and you probably shouldn't be right. in a permit. So it's kind of like this really mushy standard that uh, you know, I, I, I have a question for you a little later. They'll talk about that. But that, that's basically what the majority's, uh, you know, opinion is. And Breyer's really big into, like, making his own standards and stuff like this. So it's not an exact science, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the dissent, uh, I think it was Alito who wrote this. He said, in, he said, and I quote, instead of concocting our own rule, I would interpret the words of the statute. And in my view, the better of the two possible interpretations is that a permit is required when a pollutant is discharged directly from a point source to navigable waters. So, um, you know, the problem with this is that technically, you know, Breyer was saying that a, a pipe owner could simply move the pipe back perhaps only a few yards and the pollution must travel mm -hmm. through at least some groundwater. So, I mean, you could picture this in your mind, right? You have yeah. like this massive pipe that ends like 10 yards from the ocean and then it just like, it, it falls onto the ground 10 yards away from the ocean and then seeps mm -hmm. into the groundwater and then to the ocean. Uh, under the dissent's um, opinion, then that would be, they wouldn't have to obtain a permit for that, right? And, yeah. and Breyer and the majority think that's pretty ridiculous, that loophole, where as mm -hmm. long as it seeps through some groundwater, doesn't matter how much, doesn't matter how close the pollution is to the water, the actual navigable waters, as long as it seeps through some groundwaters, they would not have to obtain a permit. And that's mm -hmm. why Breyer thinks that his standard should apply, the functional equivalent of a direct discharge. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the lay of the land for that case. And with that, I was kind of wondering, do you think the test is too murky, even though I think we could both agree that, um, you know, Maui shouldn't be able to pollute whatever, like millions of gallons or something of wastewater, uh, of waste of pollution into navigable waters. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I do, uh, 
I, I agree with the majority that this is really bad, but like at the same time, this is one of those murky tests. Like I, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, courts across the country are going to have to try to figure out exactly what Breyer was talking about here. Right. Uh, well, I, I, I think I think this kind of build onto that. This is a difficult case, I think, to derive really a legal principle from. At the end of the day, like yes, yeah. like to the extent that. Um, Justice Alito points out, like, they are concocting a rule that, you know, is somewhat, it, it's difficult to kind of codify, right? Which I yeah. think is, I don't necessarily know if they're trying to do that as well, because, you know, you look at Justice Breyer, for example, and you look at his judicial philosophy from a much broader perspective, and it's always, there's not a sort of one-size-fits-all designation, but he's been generally categorized as sort of like this pragmatist of the court, yeah. self-about pragmatist. And I think that really, this is, the a good example of you know a a quote-unquote pragmatic sort of ruling where it's like look we're not trying to necessarily establish a far-reaching uniform legal principle here it's you know this is what the statute says this is what it clearly seems to be intended to do and if we were to not if we were to allow you know basically you know the maui county to dump any waste you know so long as it hits you know some degree of you know groundwater you know at what point does that become like you know how how much like is it small particulate matter is it a couple yards is it a couple miles i, I then you functionally break the statute right so yeah. i can see how this is a pragmatic ruling which is why i think you have who is it roberts and kavanaugh jumped yes. in on this majority yeah. who are generally seen as you know sort of the softer you know originalists you know a little bit more with you know, sort of the pragmatic um, aspect of the court. Um, so I, I think that Breyer is correct here in terms of his ruling. Um, in terms of, you know, does this really establish a hard and fast legal principle? No, and maybe to, you know, to Justice Alito's point, this is kind of dangerous for the court to be doing. But at the same time, I mean, like, yeah, I, I think this operates on two planes. I think it operates on a pragmatic level, but also in a weird sort of way, I think it actually could operate arguably on an originalist level too, because I would be willing to argue yeah. that from an, the original intent or the original meaning of the Clean Water Act with regard to that provision was, yeah, we don't want you know there to be harmful waste that's being dumped into the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Really, the means to which it gets there, you know, this is still it's not exactly the same, but you know, it's, it's really, it's still getting to the ocean by virtue of a couple yards. Yeah. yeah. So the textual, like the text of the statute is what, like they kind of ignore the dissent kind of ignores the intent. They're only trying to like really look at the text. Oh, well, the text doesn't say this, even though the intent is clearly like, there's absolutely no way that any of the authors of the clean water act thought that Mm -hmm. if you, if you have a pipe that ends five yards before you hit the ocean and it seeps into groundwater, Yep. that that would not violate the the law right so they i don't yep. know they just i guess they didn't come up with this like case situation but mm-hmm. you know mount what maui was doing they were saying the epa study said that basically all of the waste that what they were dumping into these wells was ending up in the ocean and they and because it's seeping yep. through some groundwater that they shouldn't have to obtain a permit i mean it's clear that the authors yeah. would not have been okay with that so i think you're i think Definitely. you're right yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So we're making our way down yeah. to the Supreme Court roundup. So we yeah. have, I think, one or two more cases or, or yeah. sort of areas to discuss before we get into the feature segment for today. Uh-huh. Uh, and sort of in the theme of, you know, these big Supreme Court cases, one that actually has not been decided, at least as of this recording yet, no. um, but was argued earlier. Um, in it was near the start of the term, what? right? 
Yes, it was in October. I think it was October 9th, two thousand nineteen. Yeah, so if you want to, if you could explain why this one hasn't been handed down, like the the big, the like the yeah, because it's so big. You want you want to talk a little bit about how the Supreme Court exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so this is um a major case involving Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four, um, which we we'll get into here in a second. But basically, uh, as Matt pointed out, this is among one of the most consequential cases on the docket this term. Uh -huh. um, it's, I actually don't know if it's consolidated with uh, a case that is pretty much identical. I don't know I if thought it was separate, together. but I don't know if it was consolidated. I'm I think sure. they're separate. I'm not sure, though, because I always read about them in tandem together. But anyway, uh -huh. um, the, the one that we're covering here today is Altitude Airways v. Zardo, which is a right case out of the Second Circuit here in New York. Um, I believe it came out of the um, out of New York that was uh, argued earlier in October of 2019. So uh, in a future episode, uh, depending on if they uh, issue a ruling here, which they should pretty soon, uh, we will dive more into this case. But for now, um, the gist of it, uh, along with the other case that addresses a similar claim, is that an employee at Altitude Airways was terminated for alleged inappropriate behavior in the workplace. And um, I'm going to sort of gloss over the facts here, but basically there was a, a gentleman uh, whose name was, I believe his first name was Donald, Donald Zarda, um, was a, a gay man who was working for this airline and was, I think, assisting a customer with um, uh, their seatbelt uh, prior to takeoff. And there was some hesitation as to, you know, when he was trying to get it in. Um, and there was a complaint. He said, no, no, it's okay. I'm gay. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, to do anything to the female passenger. And then I believe it was the passenger's spouse had then complained to staff that um, Zarda had inappropriately touched um, you know, his, his wife or his significant other uh, when they were uh, buckling the seatbelt. So anyway, um, the company terminated him for uh, on the premise that he was engaging in inappropriate behavior in the workplace. So the respondent um, disputed this and claims that his dismissal was on account of his sexual orientation, that it was not actually um, connected to anything else. And the specific legal question at issue here is whether A, he was discriminated against on account of his sexual orientation. So this idea of was he dismissed actually because of his sexual orientation, or was he actually um, dismissed uh, for inappropriate behavior in the workplace connected to, I guess, how he was helping somebody buckle their seatbelt? Um, or two, um, and two, um, and this is really the big one, is sexual orientation a protected class under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Um, and to give a little bit of background on this, uh, this provision protects against workplace discrimination and a series of other things connected to the workplace on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, uh, or national origin. So really on a more granular level, there's um, a lot of disagreements about this idea of sexual orientation being covered under Title VII, uh, which only designates those classes that I just read here. So, and that's sort of led to this wide, you know, uh, maybe not wide, but significant degree of disagreement among the circuit courts, which is why the Supreme Court probably took the case um, as to whether you know it is included. So there's legal commentators and academics on one side um, that really say that you know sexual orientation is um, you know covered under Title VII because it's implicitly connected to sex discrimination. And I can explain a little bit more about um, some of the arguments for that um, in a bit. Um, and the others on the sort of the more I'll, I'll dub this the textualist side, or, or maybe originalist, because it that becomes a little more complex. But that side of these, I'll generally argue that the statute is the statute is very textually specific in that it lists all those protective classes, and sexual orientation is not among those. And on top of that, 
um, the more sort of original, original intent originalists would, I think, correctly argue, um, at least in terms of um, talking about intent, that this would not have been intended to protect um, against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, whether you agree, you know, whether you agree that they should have is a totally separate question, but I think it's pretty uh, indisputable that they were not writing this with the intention of protecting that. Um, now, now, I think, Matt, the question that I have for you is, you know, well, obviously we don't have an opinion here yet. Um, it's likely that this case- I can tell you what the opinion's gonna say. Yeah, but yeah. But, um, no, I know, I, I'm, I'm very sure what, what's yeah, gonna happen. Um, so basically, uh, that's sort of my question is, you know, do yeah. you think that the court will opt here for a broader reading of the statute, or do you think that the narrower interpretation that I just said, um, sort of the original intent originalists have been forwarding uh, is in order here, given that the statute is, you know, you know, it doesn't list sexual orientation as a specific protected class. What do you think? By four uh, conservatives and liberals in their own camps saying that the, uh, you know, what this law does is it doesn't prevent uh, discrimination on the basis of uh, sexual orientation. So there's there's always this there's always this hope that like Roberts or I think now I mean nobody thinks that Alito or Thomas is going to uh, come to the other side. But I think I, th I think there's there's speculation on uh, I think Gorsuch. If I if mm -hmm. I, it's been a little while since I've done a lot of reading on this case, I think there was speculation that there was a possibility that Gorsuch would side with the liberals on this, yeah. but I don't know. I'm not very optimistic on like the conservatives coming over on these big cases. I mean, you mm -hmm. you could you could only point to a couple cases of this happening yeah. in the past decade. Like this is one of those blockbuster cases, as you kind of alluded yeah. to. So like, you know, not, no offense to uh, the environmental law case, but that's not a blockbuster yeah. case. So and if any of you environmentalists are listening to this podcast, it's offended. I'm sorry. But I mean, you know, there's, there's nobody who is waiting yeah. for that case. I mean, there's people waiting for the case, but there's not nearly as many people waiting for that case as like this big title case. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, what do you got? Like, you got Roberts siding with the liberals yeah. in NFIB v. Sebelius, and then you got Kennedy siding with the liberals in uh, Opkerfell v. Hodges, and then, you know, besides that, like, there's not I, I Carpenter. I forget yeah. which. I forget which conservative justice was it. Was it Gorsuch siding with the liberals on Carpenter? I think. I think it was Gorsuch. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a Fourth Amendment nerd. That's probably not a big case compared to this. Um, yeah. Uh, besides uh, those cases, I mean, what other, what other times? I don't yeah. see. I don't see it happening. I, I, I was wondering no, what yeah. you think. I I I, I cautiously agree with you. And the uh -huh. only thing that I can sort of see is a possible defection. I don't know who it would be. If I'm being entirely honest, um, I, uh -huh. I could see it being Roberts. I could see it being Kavanaugh, given that he's shown you know some degree of willingness yeah. to side with the liberals on certain issues. Um, you know, maybe Gorsuch, although I I, I would be less. I thought there of, was Gorsuch. I I I'm pretty sure Gorsuch, there was speculation. Might have been, yeah. I forget why, but I definitely chief, thought. Yeah. What's yeah. interesting is that a lot of the you know considerations of this case that I've heard so far, and there's a, a variety of different arguments that are being forwarded by the respective sides of the aisle. But and one of the principal things is that you know this idea of you, know, you cannot you know, that really when it comes down to this pragmatic consideration of like sexual orientation as a protected class is that it is in many ways very much connected to this idea of sex discrimination. So there's this case that I know a lot of. Um, commentators have been pointing toward uh, it was Hopkins v Pricewaterhouse v Hopkins because there's Hopkins v Pricewaterhouse and then it's in Burger. I forget which one was the actual Supreme Court case yeah. versus the uh, but anyway in that case in Hopkins 
um, there was uh, basically one of the key principles that was derived from that was this idea that sexing, uh, stereotyping, uh, gender stereotyping is a form of sex discrimination that would be, um, you know, raw, that would be not allowed under Title VII. So what a lot of commentators have been forwarding is that, you know, this idea of sexual orientation is sex discrimination because you are not conforming to a gender stereotype, you know, that's associated with your gender. So for example, uh, for a gay man, you know, it would, they're not fitting the traditional, you know, heteronormative stereotype of, you know, liking women or being with women, you know, by liking men, they are breaking that sort of like, you know, that paradigm. It, and if you sort of ride that to its logical conclusion, it's well, well you're discriminating against them on the basis of their sex because they're not conforming yeah. to a, a gender stereotype. stereotype. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting argument that could potentially sway one of the conservative justices. Yeah, no, I think, that yeah. Because um, I think Sandra Day O'Connor actually was one of the ones who wrote a concurring opinion in that. Um, yeah. But anyway, we're leaps and bounds from that. I, I, I that said, if I'm a betting man, I'm I'm going to agree with you here. Um, yeah. No, possible I, I, defection from, I would say either Kavanaugh or Roberts. I'd be very surprised. Like yeah. I would be very. So it's going to be that, it's going to be an insane next couple yeah, months with that. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I and also we didn't, yeah, we didn't we didn't include. Uh, I, I don't think the abortion case from Louisiana, which I think is still in front of the court. I don't know if that was, but anyway. Um, moving on, to, and this will be a nice segue to our main segment. Um, just if you want to give a brief sort of update uh, with regard to the Supreme Court on uh, all this stuff going on with the Trump cases. Yeah. So I. That, well, we did yeah. The standard of, drama. Yeah. Speaking of a crazy next couple of months with the court, I mean, I, I think all the decisions will be out by late next month, right? So all of this, yeah. plus these Trump financial records cases, which, by the way, have not been heard yet. They will. Uh, so there's there's three cases. Two of them were consolidated, and uh, we talked about this pretty pretty in depth in past episodes. I forget which one, maybe episode two or episode three. And um, what it has to do with are Trump's financial records. So the uh, the first case um, is about whether uh, Congress can subpoena records from Trump's accountant, not Trump himself. That's very important. It's Trump's accountant. Yeah. It's a uh, private third party. Uh, whether Congress can do that. Trump is trying to quash those subpoenas. And then uh, the other case is about um, whether Cy Vance, who is Manhattan's district attorney, am I getting that right? Yep. I always mix it up. Uh, Manhattan's district's attorney who is trying to also get <laughs> financial records from um, uh, Trump's uh, third party accountants or people would associate with him right so i mean it's yep. it's very it's similar but it's a little different because it has, one has to do with congress one has to do with um a, a state uh district attorney so yep. uh yeah it, it's the, like i like it was originally canceled and i had thought this is why i was thinking john roberts the first time if you recall vincenzo is because yep. i thought roberts would punt this all the way to next term to save trump because even if they heard in October, they're obviously not making a decision until like what, like March at the earliest or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I thought they were just gonna punt till after the election because um, of COVID-19. But Roberts actually decided to um, hear the most important cases. And to his credit, he said that these financial records cases are uh, among the most important cases, which I mean, they have to be. I mean, it would be the most partisan, <laughs> Like, it would be one thing if they punted all of the cases to next term, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would have thought that would have been really partisan. But it, the audacity of John Roberts, if he said this wasn't one of the most important cases, because he did, by the way, punt some cases to next term. I mean, mm -hmm. they, there wasn't the time. Well, I mean, there, there probably was a time if he, if he really wanted to. But um, 
he ended up punting a, a, at least a couple cases to next term, mm-hmm. but he kept this yeah. on the on the record. I mean, on the docket for this term, and it will be heard, I believe, on maybe like the fourteenth or something like that. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact date, but and they'll be hearing uh, oral arguments over the phone. I actually think oral arguments over the phone start this week. I forget they're live streaming it. It's very exciting, as we talked about. I think in the last episode, I'll actually be listening to. I think I actually have class during uh, Mazars which is extremely disappointing. I think I'll be skipping class, honestly. <laughs> I haven't decided. I mean, this is such a big case. Like, it's like, right. the, it's like the, it's kind of like Trump. It's like the, well, I guess it's not as important as USV Nixon, but it's, it's kind of like our generation's USV Nixon when it comes to like executive power. And um, one thing I'll mention is that they actually were seeking um, briefing on this idea of um, whether this is a political question. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the what the court was trying to say here, I mean, we're not sure how many justices care about this political question doctrine, but if the court did decide it was a political question, basically a question that really should be decided by the branches, by the other branches, not by the courts, what it would it would essentially be a loss for Trump, because if the court decides that this is a political question and should be settled, then Trump would lose his ability to quash the subpoenas, right? However, Trump would actually win some other cases, like the McGahn case, which I think we might have mentioned, or maybe we didn't. Did we mention it in another episode? We alluded to it, and we we said that that was one of the ones that was on the docket. Yeah, so... Uh, there's a McCann, there's a McGann case that was just heard on Bonk uh, with the DC Circuit actually um, over live stream. It was, I listened to part of that, but um, basically it's about whether Congress can uh, make uh, former White House Counsel McGann testify to Congress uh, if con- if uh, Congress is able to you know enforce its subpoena through the courts, and if the Supreme Court decides that. The, you know, enforcing subpoenas is a political question between the executive and legislative branch. It would be a massive blow to legislative um, oversight, mm-hmm. but it would mean that Trump would not be able to quash, like, the, at least the congressional subpoenas. I'm not sure what would happen with Cybance's subpoena. And it would also mean that McGahn would not need to testify. So Trump would win one, he would lose one, but it would be a massive loss for the legislative branch and a massive win for the executive branch, basically. So that's kind of the uh, summary of the Trump cases. I was wondering, you have any thoughts on this? Do you think that, um, I, you know, I when it comes to how the court was going to rule on this, I mean, there's a lot of really skeptical, cynical, um, mostly liberal commentators who think that there's a possibility that the court sides with sides with Trump on these, but I, I'm really not optimistic on that. I mean, I, I really do think it's it's going to be 7-2, Eight one, maybe even nine zero. I'd be really surprised if it was. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be super surprised if it was six three five four. But I really don't think that it's going to be five four going the other way, saying that Trump should be able to uh, quash uh, these subpoenas. Uh, I mean, it's right. possible they can go the political doctrine way, but I just don't see it because if they say that um, the only it, that. The, the enforceability of congressional subpoenas is a political question that the court should not be involved with, then the legislative branch would basically have just only a couple options to actually get their subpoenas yep. enforced. So the ways they would have to get their subpoenas enforced, one, they would have to withhold funds from the executive branch completely, which would mm-hmm. like, it would really right. hurt the, the government, right? Like if they were holding these funds yep. for essential government functions. Uh, two, they could use their inherent contempt power to like fine people which they really don't do, but I, technically they have the power to do. 
And um, you know, the really big one that has been used in the past, but I don't think has been used since the 1930s, they technically could send the sergeant of arms to arrest a person, which is yeah. kind of crazy to think about, but it's perfectly legal. The Supreme Court's upheld it. It just hasn't yep. been used in, I think, 80 years yeah. because- There's actually, I think there used to be a cell that was down in the Capitol building. Yeah, I think there's like a Capitol jail, yeah. but I think the last time, they, they put the guy up in like the Willard Hotel, I think, in D.C. Yeah, they, they, they was the last something else now. Yeah. They, they yeah. had to use like a separate location or, or just the D, one of the D.C. jails. So. Yeah, so I you mean, know, I, the whole point of the, one, one thing, one last thing I'll say is that like a lot of people are kind of nervous about that because like you're getting, you're getting into like, there's a possibility of like an armed standoff between like the executive branch and you know, the legislative branch. I mean, imagine like, I don't know, trying to force an executive branch official to testify and you you're suddenly having like a shootout between like the legislative branch, you know, officials and then the executive branch officials. I mean, it's just, I, I really don't think that's a very adequate no. place to go, but you know, w what are your thoughts on this, Vincenzo? To put it absolutely in the simplest terms possible, yeah. the justices will, will figure out a way to avoid the exact scenario that you just, I think, outlined, uh -huh. because that, I think, does nothing to help the legitimacy of the court, and they know that. And this court, even though, you know, they have a, a, a large case, a, a, a uppercase, rather, a C conservative majority on the court, I think, is still very, very aware and afraid of you know losing legitimacy um and it is in none of their interest for the courts to be considerably so what do you think about that uh, i agree with what you had said um that it's likely um that they'll go you know probably seven two eight one um but i mean who's gonna be I'm the not one sure i'm gonna say thomas now alito one of one of the two 100 percent one of the two if they if probably they if, one, if you're, if you're haunting, Gorsuch, yeah, it, it's, I, I would probably say Thomas, but I, I, I honestly don't know these cases. I really don't know because it's, yeah, I, I just don't know. <laughs> There's a lot that could happen. Um, and, oh, or it could be five, four, six, three. I mean, we, it whenever really we try to sort of game these things out, like, you know, something that totally, totally different, um, you know, type of case, but like, Bush v. Gore were like, that was another like major, I think the political question was um, invoked at certain points. Um, uh -huh. They segmented like the ruling where it's like, you know, there was an eight, uh, you know, a nine zero, like, you know, agreement here, but then there was like a six three there and a seven two there. So, and then I think the piece that we cared about was five four. So, I mean, yeah. it, it, these cases I think have the potential to get very messy. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. Um, yeah. So, yeah, me neither. <laughs> So speaking of that, um, and speaking of the craziness of the Trump administration and the executive branch, um, I think we're going to move into our final segment for today, uh, which is the, the recent revelations uh, regarding some um, memos that were released uh, regarding Michael Flynn, the uh, now disgraced former, I think might, might be history's shortest the tenure. It was the shortest tenure in the entire history of the office. Yeah. yeah by so far. Matt, you want to give a little update on that situation um, and tell yeah. us a little bit about what's been going on? Sure. So like uh, Vincenzo said, Michael Flynn, who was a general uh, for the D Defense Intelligence Agency, who's actually, I think he was fired by Obama or something like that. It was, yes, he was dismissed. Yeah, I forget exactly why. I mean, I know I'm always mixed up him and Mattis. Mattis was just like kind of like pushed out for being too much of a hawk. Uh, but I think Flynn went the same way. I'm not positive, though. And he was a massive surrogate for Trump in the 2016 election. I mean, he was really, really famous for saying lock her up at the 2016 convention. Meanwhile, he is probably going to prison. Well, 
unless there's a pardon. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but anyway, she, he was really famous for saying lock her up, referring to Hillary Clinton at the 2016 convention. And, uh, you know, I think he was, he might have been considered for VP. I mean, I, he probably was, he wasn't high up on the short list at all, but I think his name was on there because Trump really likes military people. But anyway, he was pretty close with Trump, especially towards the latter part of the 2016 campaign. And when mm. Trump won, he decided to um, make him part of the administration. I forget exactly when it was announced he would become NSA or National Security Advisor, but it, it was a, it was a, it was sometime during the transition. But anyway, what happened was that um, I, you know, what really led to him uh, led to his crime, which was lying to the FBI, was there was a call in I believe it was December or November. I forget exactly when it was. There was a call between him and Sergei Kislyak, who was uh, ambassador to the U.S. from Russia. And this is at the time when the Obama administration was retaliating, retaliating against Russia for their interference in the 2016 election. It was known that they interfered. It wasn't exactly known the, um, you know, the brevity, uh, I mean, the depth of um, mm -hmm. how much uh, they had interfered, but they knew they interfered. Obama had knew. So he decided to retaliate against Russia. And the Obama administration was kind of waiting for retaliation, like, okay, what are the Russians going to do? And then the Russians announced they weren't going to retaliate. So everybody was like, uh, what? Like, why aren't they retaliating? Yeah. And the intelligence community was super confused. And then they realized that Flynn placed the call to Kislyak, I guess, the day after, the day of. And, uh, you know, Flynn, I forget exactly what he said on the phone, but he's like, uh, you know, Russia, don't retaliate. We'll, once we come into office... Uh, you know, will back off or something similar to that. But it, it basically, it was not a perfunctory call. It wasn't, uh, you know, it was an important call where he basically kind of convinced Russia not to retaliate against U.S. sanctions by the Obama administration. And this is during the transition period. So first off, this is not technically, well, it's kind of technically illegal-ish. There's a thing called a Logan Act. You're not supposed mm -hmm. to be negotiating, like, I, I don't remember the exact statute, but the, the important part is that the Logan Act has never been enforced. It's not really illegal. So what Flynn did was certainly inappropriate because he was basically kind of negotiating, you know, he was kind of negotiating during the transition period, which you're not really supposed to do yeah. uh, because the only government, because there's only supposed to be one government in the United States at one time. And Flynn was basically kind of acting like a second government at this time. So it was certainly inappropriate. Yeah. But Flynn didn't tell anybody about this besides well i know he i don't think he I, I, it's not clear if trump knew but he was really famous for lying to mike pence and mike pence went on tv and kind of embarrassed himself saying flynn didn't talk about sanctions with um sanctions with russia in this phone call i think sean spicer said oh it was just like kind of like a happy holidays phone call there was nothing important talked about it uh, but, I mean, as you could guess, U.S. intelligence was monitoring the phone call, um, not not for Flynn, but because, you know, any call that the Russian ambassador is on that they could possibly get their hands on, they're listening. So, mm -hmm. um, so U.S. intelligence knew that Flynn talked about sanctions, and they knew he lied to the vice president. And at the same time, they're also investigating this whole, the Russian investigation has been going on for like seven months now or whatever. So then they wanted to, and they knew Flynn had lied to a couple people in the White House, including Pence, because they see these public statements. So they knew he lied, right? So he's basically compromised, right? Because Russia knows exactly what happened on the call, and a lot of people in the U.S. government don't know. So basically, he, he, he could be blackmailed, right, by Russia. Right. And the FBI really doesn't like this, obviously, when the national security advisor for the United States is possibly able to be blackmailed by Russia, our biggest ad or first or second biggest adversary, depending on what you're yep. 
on China, right? So this is not good. And this is on top of the fact that he's got this really weird stuff going on with Turkey. He's technically a lobbyist for the Turkish government. He's a he's an unregistered foreign agent, which is also illegal. And he didn't actually register until after he left the White House. So he's just he's compromised like through multiple different ways. And also there was this really weird plot that we won't really go into, but he also had like he was also planning to kidnap somebody and like send them to Turkey to uh, presumably be tortured or killed. I mean, he is just a really, really screwed up man, right? But anyway, finally getting to the meat of this. Uh, in January, he was interviewed by the FBI. And in that interview, he was basically asked if he talked about anything. I'm not sure exactly what the questions were, but he, he lied to the FBI saying that he didn't talk about sanctions when he did talk about sanctions on this call. Meanwhile, the call is like, what, like a month or two old. He would have remembered, especially about like this extremely important phone call. And uh, Robert Mueller formally signed, uh, you know, just told him that he lied and he was going to, you know, charge him for presumably this and other crimes as well. But uh, because Michael Flynn agreed to a plea deal, he was only charged with one count of lying to the FBI, which is not a really big crime. Uh, and he cooperated a ton with Robert Mueller. So he was actually going to be probably, he was probably going to get off scot-free. I mean, he had to pay a lot of money in legal bills, but um, he was probably going to just get probation because he's helped so much. And uh, lying to the FBI isn't that big a crime. But what happened was he really did not want to go to prison. So uh, he fired his pretty competent attorneys in, I think it was like June 2019, and then hired some like conspiracy theorist lady who um, just really decided to completely <laughs> take another route of trying to get this case completely thrown out. So, uh, you know, what came out in the last couple of days was a uh, some more paperwork that talk that had like notes from an FBI agent talking about like what their goal was when it comes to the um, when it comes to the interview with Flynn and conservative yeah. media is trying to spin this as uh, entrapment, which it, which it's not. So we can go through this a little bit more, but uh, basically, I'm reading from the Washington Post here. They they quoted a ton of different legal experts who say this is not even remotely close to entrapment, right? So. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the article said, in order to succeed here, the defense will have to prove not merely that the FBI anticipated that Flynn might lie during the interview, but that the FBI encouraged him to lie and induced him to commit a crime that he would not have committed. So, you know, Flynn came to the inter interview and he, he was not induced to lie. He was just asked, did you, you know, he, he was completely free to tell the truth and he didn't tell the truth, right? This is not entrapment at all. Another, uh, Chuck Rosenberg, who's a former U.S. attorney, um, said that it's not a close call. In this situation, Flint had three options. Tell the truth, lie, or refuse to talk. The FBI did not plan a lie, urge him to repeat the lie, record him in the lie, and then prosecute him for lying. That might be entrapment. Here, Flint was predisposed to lie, chose to talk, and then lied. That's not entrapment. Um, yep. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what's going on in conservative media. There's also this thing that we won't really get into either, which involves his son, because his son also had significant legal culpability. And uh, the prosecutors, from what I understand, were kind of leaning on Flynn uh, to sign this uh, plea agreement because his son would have criminal culpability otherwise. I mean, from what I've read, what they did was buy the book. I mean, it might be a little, it might sound a little not nice, but that's just how the justice system works so it's not right. the fbi's problem in this certain case uh it's just that's how things work in this arena so 
you know, I, I was kind of wondering uh, what you think about all the conservative backlash for the FBI for this case, and do you think that uh, Flynn's obvious pardon play will be a success for Tessa? Yeah, no, I, I think it's really just kind of sad that you have these rank-and-file conservatives, not, not even really conservatives, just these Trump conservatives that are coming to um, basically saying that this was a witch hunt and speaks to this larger conspiracy to sort of, you know, take down you know, the Trump administration that the deep state is at it again, when number yeah. one, at the, at the end of the day, I think you had correctly pointed out by citing uh, the, you know, the you know, commentary from several federal prosecutors, formal, former and current that have said that, you know, this is not something that's really out of the ordinary in any other criminal no, investigation. Not at all. Where, it happens all the time. You know, really like what you have to do is when you're sitting down and, you know, you, talking to a witness, there's a series of tactics that investigators will use to try to, you know, you know, encourage, I'm careful not to use the word course, because that gets, yeah. you know, a little dicey, but like to, yeah. to really sure. encourage, you know, strongly, you know, cooperation with an investigation. And yeah. I, I think really at the end of the day, you know, as you pointed out here, you know, he's still alive and that's yeah. still a crime. Yeah. So I, the, the way that the conservative media, I think is spinning it is, is just kind of nonsensical. I mean, if you actually look at when the papers uh, were released, um, what was unredacted from it, I actually have it in front of me here, is like, you know, one of the things that said, like, you know, our goal is to determine if Mike Flynn is going to tell the truth at his relationship with the Russians. You know, another excerpt was, what is our goal, truth slash admission, or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired? That, I think, is probably where the conservatives are really sort of yeah. zeroing in and trying to create, you know, something out of thin air where there's this large FBI conspiracy to oust Trump by saying, you know, we want to try to engage in entrapment. What that really, to, and granted, someone who's obviously not an attorney, not a prosecutor, who's still a college student, you know, if you really look at that and, you know, that in context, it's, you know, that looks like what investigators do. And so like, uh -huh. what is our goal here? What is the strategy? Like, you know, if, you know, we have something that we can leverage such that like it will materially help us in the investigation going forward, which it did in the case of the Mueller investigation, um, then that's what prosecutors do. Um, yeah. You can argue about in the in the grand scheme of things and our philosophy of criminal justice and investigations to what degree law enforcement agents should have power and leverage over witnesses, and you know at what point does that cross into the realm of extortion versus encouragement? But I, I really fail to see how this is you know number one how this exonerates Michael Flynn, which is really the tenor that. Yeah. is being taken by most conservatives, including President Trump. Yeah. Um, and, and really how it, it doesn't address the fact that um, he's still alive. And, and this leads me to my, my uh, I think a really key question here is really yeah. at the end of the day, as with a lot of stuff, I don't think really the merits of this are going to matter, sadly. Yeah, no, um, certainly not. Is that, you know, if, whether or not, like, you know, there's any substantial movement as it pertains to these documents and Michael Flynn's current predicament, Trump, has the power at the end of the day, as we've explored in, in detail in previous episodes, um, specifically dealing with Roger Stone, yeah. um, you know, Trump has the power to pardon Michael Flynn and sort of make his life considerably easier as it pertains to law enforcement investigations from the FBI. So what do you think is sort of the long and short of this? Do you think that Trump is going to, because there is, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, there is a yeah. formal criminal conviction that Michael Flynn has, correct? He is a convicted, he's, he's been, he's been, yeah, convicted he pleaded guilty. Yeah, he pleaded guilty. He pleaded guilty. Yes. Yeah. And now he's trying to withdraw that plea. So he's trying to withdraw is, the plea, exactly. That, right. Do you think that Trump is um, going to either pardon him or, you know, basically strong arm his Department of Justice into a, an accepting a withdrawal of a, of, a, of a guilty plea? Yeah. So, 
you know, I, well, first I want to go back to something really interesting you were saying earlier that I want to harp on a little bit more. So you were saying like, it, this is, if you want to, like, it's not about this case, it's about like the philosophy of how much leverage that, you know, the prosecution mm -hmm. have on witnesses and stuff like that. Yeah. And this is really fundamental to a lot of the conservative outrage when it comes to Russian, invest the Russian investigation and like Russian investigation adjacent stuff. Like we were going to talk about FISA stuff on this episode, but we decided to cut it out. But it's the same thing. Like a lot of what is went on with this Russian investigation and conservative backlash is nothing that's particular to the the, you know, the Russia case, right? Mm -hmm. So like this example of trying to get Flynn, we're not, you know, of, of doing this interview, even though they knew the truth to see if Flynn would lie, that's extremely normal in the course of investigations, right? And same thing with FISA, like the, the, like the problems with the Carter Page FISA, like uh, the FISA application, it turns out that the IG did a report that was released in the last couple weeks where the IG actually found lots of different errors and lots of different applications. So it's like, yeah. there's this entire, there's conservative outrage on the right about all of these Russia related stuff, but it's the, the real problem is with the criminal justice system itself. Like there's a lot of liberals who see what happened to Flynn and they're like, well, you know, uh, the FBI didn't do anything wrong here, but I mean, it does suck that they, the, you know, yeah. the FBI has so much leverage here. Maybe it would be good mm -hmm. if the law was changed or the FBI couldn't yeah. do this, right? But uh, th th that doesn't mean that what well, the FBI did here was wrong. Correct. They were, and I, they were just within yeah. the bounds of the law. Right. And I think that that's where this really becomes two separate debates, too, because it, what's interesting is that, again, the conservatives, as, you know, inherently all these things have a political dimension to them. They're falling in line to protect the president and his cronies. But there's no sort of substantial discussion about, you know, this as it pertains to, you know, standard, you know, law enforcement investigations and prosecution techniques that yeah. occur at the local level, or even, yeah. even at the federal level, for that matter, against people that are not friends or, you know, yeah. material supporters of the president. So it's ironic that, you know, these conservatives are coming out of the woodwork as, you know, these trying to paint the FBI as overzealous and, you know, sort of abusing its power and basically being professional extortionists when in reality, a lot of them are very, very in favor of that when it's against defendants that, you know, are not in the president's sort of orbit. Yeah. So I think that that point that you raise is particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, so the last uh, thing when it comes to pardon, I am pretty positive that the president's going to pardon him. Like if you look at his public comments, I mean, the, the thing is, right, like the president knows how it's going to play politically. Like I think... I, it's going to really help his base, but, you know, it'll probably have at least 60% of the American people against him. I mean, at the end of the day, Michael Flynn was a lobbyist for the Turkish government while working as one of the most senior national security people in the entire U.S. government. That's completely inappropriate. He lied to the FBI, and he agreed, and he, by the way, under oath, said twice that he did lie to the FBI. Like, he admitted it, right? right. So. I mean, it's absolutely well, ridiculous. And, and also on top of that, too, I mean, even from the Trump administration's him. perspective, they can't really claim that, like, you know, they never knew any of this or that this wasn't sort of on their radar. I mean, the Obama administration repeatedly had warned um, yeah, he did. the incoming Trump administration that, you know, Mr. Flynn was potentially... Yeah, Michael Flynn was terrible. Obama yeah, said yeah, it well, personally, I think, like in his he was first Oval Office meeting. Yeah. yeah, his first Oval Office meeting. Uh, the, the, I think that's like the last time, I guess Inauguration Day, they must have traded some words. But that first Oval Office meeting, I think it was Obama himself that said, don't hire Flynn. Right. So, um, you know, when it comes to the pardon timing, Trump knows how to play politically. So I, I don't think he will do it until after the election, honestly, although Flynn might mm -hmm. have to spend a little bit of time in jail, although he keeps delaying his sentencing. Like he was supposed to be sentenced in January, but like there's so much of this nonsense that 
the judge can't sentence him until this is all over. So honestly, I mean, with the amount of nonsense, the amount of money he has at his disposal, I think they might be able to push this even past the election. He might not have to serve a day in prison. And if Trump yeah. wins on election day or loses on election day, I mean, he's not going to, even if he wins, he won't have to face uh, voters for Whoa. another two or four years if you count the midterm. Whoa. So, I mean, yeah. it's the same thing with Sessions. You know, Ses- Sessions wasn't fired until like eight hours after the polls closed, right? So you now he'll do the same thing here. He'll pardon. I think right. he'll pardon Stone and pardon Flynn. All of and Manafort. The I think it's probably also. I don't know about Manafort. Uh, maybe Manafort. He's already maybe. in prison. Uh, but I think he'll pardon a lot of his cronies like the day after election. It's going to be terrible and disgusting. And yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's really all we have to say when it comes to that. So lots of positive things to look forward to in these stuff. Yeah. So. Anyway, I think we've gotten a lot done today. We are definitely longer than usual, but it's all good because at home doing nothing else, right, Matt? Well, a lot of work to do. (laughs) do, I'm I'm joking. Anyway, thank you so much again to our our listeners who tune in. And we want to take this time again to thank um, CornellRadio.com for their generous uh, airspace and also for assisting us with this podcast. Um, And uh, yeah, we look forward to being back, um, not next week, but the week after. And uh, until then, my name is Vincenzo Guido. My name is Matthew Jacob. And this has been Long Society Talk. Take care, guys. Stay safe. Bye.